0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 20th, 2023, a Friday, and if it's Friday, it's C-SPAN Day. Over the last few weeks, we've been... Uh, featuring my friend Peter Slen, an executive producer at C-SPAN, on the 10 books that shaped America. Last week, we did Frederick Douglass. Uh, this week, we're doing something altogether different, The Common Law by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Not perhaps the the most uh, exciting or sexiest of books, but probably a book that more than anything else, Peter, has really shaped America. Is that fair? It is very fair, because when he wrote this in
1: 1881, he was 40 years old. He wasn't on the Supreme Court yet, where he served for 30 years, a little bit later. But he basically encapsulated 100 years of our history in law, and then moved it forward. And the most famous quote from the book is, the life of the law has not been logic. It has been experience. And that is the quote that everybody refers to when they talk about the common law. Now, our guest was Jeff Rosen. Jeff is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And if you haven't been there, it's a glorious building and a glorious encasement of the Constitution and all that it means. And as Jeff said, he was given this book in law school and he found it difficult then. And he also found it very important and it's still taught in law school today.
0: How does the common law, Peter, address the issue of universal rights under the law, particularly of course for women and for African-Americans given the profoundly controversial and disturbing history, especially of slavery?
1: Yeah, um, that wasn't the point of the common law. The common law was to encapsulate what had been for the last 100 years, where we had, what we had developed, and what he thought the law should be. And when he talks about it being based on experience, he goes on to say that the law embodies the story of a nation's development through many centuries, and it cannot be dealt with as if it contained only the axioms and corollaries of a book of mathematics. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was probably the waspiest American who ever lived, um, had fought in the Civil War on the Union side, Mm. and he had lived through Reconstruction. So these issues were highly important to him, and you can see his work on the Supreme Court later that, A, is consistent with what he wrote in the common law, and consistent with his life
0: experiences, in terms of the narrative of the series, the ten books that shaped America, how does Holmes's book, The Common Law, uh, connect both with Paine's Common Sense uh, and the Federalist? I- I'm guessing that they're in in some ways connected.
1: It's interesting that you say that. Um, in the series, we've looked at America's foundations. We've looked at America's expansion. We've looked at the era of slavery, and now we're looking at its jurisprudence. That's what we've done so far. They kind of build on each other. And Oliver Wendell Holmes would probably have read. We didn't discuss common sense and the Federalist Papers necessarily. That would, you know, what I wish I would have tied in the Federalist Papers to this whole thing. That would have been a great question for Jeff Rosen, Um, bringing in the Federalist Papers. Darn it. I wish you had asked me that question earlier so I could have brought that in. That would have been a great, great combination.
0: So when did Rosen, Peter, begin to, you you said that he he read it in law school and he was rather bored by it. When, When did he recognize its importance? When did its message resonate with him?
1: Well, the message resonated with him. He was a Harvard grad, as was Oliver Wendell Holmes. And the message resonated. He just found it laborious when he read it in law school. And as he said on the air, he goes, it was not until I you gave me this homework assignment to reread it that I could see some of the connections to current law and the foundations of law in there. So I I found it to be a for me and I'm you know very average I found it to be readable humorous um reachable so Jeff and he doesn't deal a whole lot with with constitutional law in the book and Jeff is a con law law lawyer you know he's a constitutional uh lawyer and so maybe that's why I could find it readable because my mind's a little simpler and some of the things Holmes was writing about, I could, I could figure out.
0: So what does Holmes argue in terms of this relationship between the law and society? Which leads which? Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a binary choice,
1: but he does see a vital, vital role for life experience, nation experience in today's world we talk often you know some scholars and supreme court justices look at the law look at the constitution as a living document as opposed to Antonin Scalia Justice Thomas you know fairly or unfairly I think it's safe to say that they say is it in the constitution and therefore it's law um, or vice versa And Holmes was arguing more for a living constitution, that our experience and how we've changed should be reflected in the
0: law. Peter, if it is a a living constitution, as you say, and much of it is predicated on, on British common law, does this, in some ways, undermine the whole revolutionary enterprise of the American Republic? Did, did Holmes recognize that in the book?
1: Now, that I don't recall him speaking specifically about. And I, I, I guess, could you explain your question a little bit more, Andrew?
0: The American is founded, in, you know, from from pain and and, and and the Federalists in particular on the idea of rebelling. Beginning anew um, of establishing a republic in contrast to the British monarchy, but much of the American law was borrowed or taken, and I now use those words carefully from British common law. Correct. So my question com- is: is did I mean how did Oliver Wendell Holmes square the the history, the long history uh, of Anglo-American common law with the revolutionary history of the American Republic.
1: Yeah. That's not something that he necessarily squares in the common law. He is a, this book was a hit in London or in England, I should say. And he, it was popular. It was well-received. And I think it's because of what you just said, which is a lot of this book is based on English common law. And he doesn't square that circle with the revolution necessarily. I think, you know, the revolution happened. That's part of our history. Our constitution was developed. That's part of our history. We have to use our constitution. So.
0: He didn't give a particular American twist to it. I mean, when he wrote about the common law, what's the difference between the American common law and the British common law? uh now you're getting to be too much of a lawyer for my
1: for my uh, ability sorry about that
0: so he so. didn't but, but the book is about the common law in a, in a broad universal sense rather than just in an american sense i mean this is a series peter on books that shaped america it's not a book, it, it's not a series about books that shaped the law
1: that is correct And again, the importance of his legal scholarship is the part that became, the part that shaped America, his encapsulation of the first 100 years, his thoughts going forward. Um, The first requirement of a sound body of law is that it should correspond with the actual feelings and demands of the community, whether right and wrong. And Holmes at times when he was served on the Supreme court from 1902 to 1932 would issue an opinion on a law that he disagreed with Mm -hmm. based on what it should be. And we're talking about issues of free speech. We're talking about sedition. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there were some cases I'm sure he'd like to take back. Um, uh, But he would issue an opinion based on how he perceived the law and not his personal feelings.
0: From this book, Peter, do you get a sense in in a way of an American philosophy? Often seems to me as someone who's spent more than half of their life in America, uh, so as in some ways a foreigner. If America does have a ruling ideology, it's not one of left or right. It's uh, an obsession with the law and uh, and legal issues. It's a, it's a culture and a country where lawyers and the law and courts and, of course, the Supreme Court are more powerful than perhaps any other country. Democratic or, or or non-democratic country?
1: Yeah, I would I would uh, modify what you just said. I would first of all agree fully with what you just said, but then I would modify it to say that we have an obsession with the Bill of Rights and you know search and seizure, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, free speech, freedom of religion. I think those are our obsessions, and. We take them for for granted, Andrew. And as somebody who was not raised here necessarily, you you can see that those things are occurring, and th- they're part of our DNA anymore. I think.
0: So is the Bill of Rights, and and, and maybe this is again, no, it's not something that, that that Holmes dealt with in the common law. Is the law designed to protect the Bill of Rights? Is it a reflection? Or are these two parallel worlds, the political Bill of Rights and the rule of law?
1: Political Bill of Rights, rule of law. They do feed one another. And yes, if it is in the constitution, it is the law. And when it comes to free speech, where's the line drawn and that's one of our
0: hallmarks
1: and you know oliver wendell holmes is a supreme court justice who talked about free speech is not yelling fire in a crowded theater those are those are his words and that's a famous phrase that's kind of where he drew the line when it came to free speech Um, but there were some sedition cases as well that as a believer in free speech, he opined against the sedition, the people who were were railing against the government, because, well, that was the law. He didn't rule on the constitutionality of the law. He ruled on the behavior of those who were acting against the current law, so something he didn't, something he did, anyway. didn't disagree
0: cool. with. This week, Peter, lots of controversy about people what what people should and shouldn't say in public and what rights they should and shouldn't have. Um right. Speaking of of the common law and the Federalist Papers that you dealt with in the second show, of course, the Federalist Papers created the idea of a separation of powers and a third a rail of government the supreme court is does 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 holmes address those bigger political issues in this book the way in which the supreme court has become um an agency of government one of the the balancing forces ensuring that no one ever has full control of government
1: yeah we we talked about in the program we talked about whether or not wh- where holmes would fall on our contemporary supreme court you know would he would he be on the conservative side would he be on the liberal side to to use two very general phrases um, jeff rosen compared him to stephen Breyer, the recently retired justice um, who was replaced by katanji brown jackson and somebody who looked at the individual cases and didn't necessarily have a predictable preset view on each issue um when he dealt with labor rights free speech illegal searches these are all constitutional well free speech illegal searches constitutional rights that he's dealing with here um but Labor rights. One of his quotes, and this was a case where he voted against his personal views, he said, While I don't necessarily agree that the state should be able to tell a baker that they can't work for 80 hours a week, the state has declared that to be the law. And nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the state can't. Regulate commerce to an extent. So this is a case where he would vote against maybe his personal views.
0: Is there any controversy about this book? As you say, it's somewhat dry. Uh, Holmes's career was controversial in some ways. His views on eugenics, for example, does this yeah. Yeah. is this reflected yeah. in any way in the book?
1: Uh, besides the fact that he discusses while I may feel this way, the law says this. No, no, it's it's a pretty it's a recitation of facts and his opinions and what he is trying to accomplish with this book. And the Carry Buck case, that's the one I if I can recall correctly, I believe he said later that he regretted that decision. Now I could be putting words in his mouth. Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of those, oh, bon vivant is the wrong term. Um, We could call him a Renaissance man in a sense. Very smart, very learned. Wrote down every book that he had read from Aristotle to, to, uh, uh, you know, every single book that he had read. And he kept a list of these things he was a well-known figure and i asked our guest jeff rosen if he would compare him to a ruth bader ginsburg or an antonin scalia to justices in recent history that became part of the popular culture um and and he thought that was a relatively fair relatively fair comparison so
0: if that's true, he wrote this book in 1881 um, as Reconstruction had profoundly failed and America, if not gone, returned to slavery, certainly gone back to a, uh, an apartheid system where voting rights of African-Americans, for example, in the South were taken away. Wasn't? Shouldn't there have been a, a degree of outrage in this book and in his life? It always seems these lawyers always hide behind the law to protect the status quo one way or the other.
1: Now, that could be true or it could not be. I—that That is not something that we necessarily got into, Andrew. Unless In so, we kind of went from 1881, the impact of the book then, its impact today, and then to his Supreme Court service.
0: I'm still not getting this. I, I get the first four books, Payne, Federalists of course, even the Lewis and Clark book, which is interesting and certainly Frederick Douglass. Why is this book included in the ten books? I mean, a lot of books have been written in Peter. You, you know that better than I do. That shaped America. What is it about this book that makes it such a central reading?
1: The goal of this series again is to look at different eras, topics, and viewpoints. This was one of the books on the Library of Congress's Hundred Books That Shaped America," and. This is what the Library of Congress said about it. that quote is gone. Sorry about that. Um, But they said it was probably the most important legal document written or legal book written at the time. And this is why we picked it. The name is familiar to all of us. We've all said, "Oh, Oliver Wendell Holmes." Yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Um, who was he? And so that was part of our goal as well—to explore yeah. somebody who's 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 known, but not known
0: enough. Yeah. And the the next five, and we're going to be dealing with them over the next five weeks. None of them address the law. So you've chosen a book, a law book, a law a book to reflect the profound effects of law on the history of America. Is that fair? Yeah. Foundation, expansion, slavery, law.
1: Next book we're moving into is our first novel.
0: And that is Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So I will see you next week, Peter. That is a, is the opposite, I think, of the common law if uh, I don't know what you would call the opposite of a book that's dry. How, how would you describe that? Uh, I would describe this book as entertaining, controversial,
1: and as Ernest Hemingway says, all American novels that follow are based on Huckleberry